Sunset Lake CBD is a majority employee-owned hemp farm located right outside of Burlington, Vermont. Before they started growing hemp, Sunset Lake Farms produced cream for Ben & Jerry's. Sunset Lake CBD doesn't use any pesticides or herbicides to grow any of its hemp plants, and they use organic fertilizer and other sustainable farming techniques to ensure the long-term health of the soil and to minimize their carbon footprint. So like all of us, my days are really stressful. By the end of the night, my kids are in bed, I'm taking a minute to chill, but I'm still unwinding. I recently started using the Relax Gummies infused with CBD isolate, reishi mushroom extract, and ashwagandha root extract. I'm really glad I tried these because they really helped me get ready for a good night of sleep, and I really think I sleep better, so I'd highly recommend it. So check out Sunset Lake CBD today at sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code HFPOD for 20% off your order. That's sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code HFPOD for 20% off your order. Farmer-owned, Vermont-grown, Sunset Lake CBD. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. I'm Amara Jones. Every day, the attacks on trans kids grow louder, and more anti-trans bills keep moving through state legislatures. In this season of the Anti-Trans Hate Machine, we're going to illuminate how the right wing has fueled these bills by generating a breathtaking and wide-ranging disinformation campaign. It's spreading like wildfire on the internet. It's then being discussed by families and churches. None of this is an accident. It's a strategy to delegitimize trans people and create a world where our existence is a question. Subscribe to season two of the Anti-Trans Hate Machine, a plot against equality, wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Hey listeners. I want to tell you about a sponsor, Music Masters Collective. They're a nonprofit organization that produces unique music events, providing opportunities for fans and artists to meet and collaborate in an inspired and creative atmosphere. Every week, they host different events, all with the opportunity to learn from world-class musicians like Oteil Burbridge, Trouble No More, former members of the band, Milk Carton Kids, Nikki Glaspie, Bill Frizzell, Sean Colvin, and many more. This June, join the Fab Faux, Joan Osborne, John Sebastian, Marshall Crenshaw, and a great group of faculty for the debut of Magical Mystery Camp. This all-inclusive, once-in-a-lifetime music vacation experience in the heart of the Catskills will be packed with nightly performances, workshops, speakers, song circles, open mics, and a lot more. If you're a performing musician at any level, bring your instrument. If you're a music lover, bring your good spirit. It's an amazing experience for individuals, friends, and couples alike. Registration is open, spots are filling up, so check it out soon. And scholarships are available. Check out MagicalMysteryCamp.com slash HelpingFriendly to learn more. All you need is love. All you need is love. 
Hey everyone, this is the Helping Friendly Podcast. This is episode 99. We're going to jump into an interview I had with uh, Daniel Pinchbeck, who's an author and futurist, really interesting guy. Pretty fascinating, thought-provoking ideas about where we are as a sort of global society and where we go next. There's definitely some music discussion, and then um, we shared a set of early fish, which I think fits well with what we talked about. So, Hope you all enjoy. We'll see you on the flip side. Hey, everyone. I'm here with uh, Daniel Pinchbeck, who is an author, a journalist, and a thinker. He's written several books, and um, this is a little bit of a departure for us, but we're we're going to definitely be talking about music and um, culture and, and a lot of the things um, and the way they, those things overlap. Um, Daniel has a, a book coming out in February called How Soon Is Now, um, and we're going to talk about a lot of that stuff in the book. But first, just want to welcome Daniel to the show. Thanks for coming on. Uh, thanks so much for having me. I'm excited. This is interesting. You've um, you've wrote you've written a few books. Um, the the one that I know the best is is called Breaking Open the Head, which is um, subtitles A Psychedelic Journey into the Heart of Contemporary Shamanism. This is a little. How soon is now? Your current book is a little bit more. Seems to me of a sort of manifesto and a, a way forward, which is interesting. I'm just curious um, as you're building on all the ideas that kind of. Um, show up in, in different parts of, of different books. Um, what was the inspiration for How Soon Is Now? How, what what was inspiring to you to kind of tie some of the stuff together, but also bring new ideas to the table? I mean, I've literally been trying to do this book for like, you know, nine or ten years in different forms. Um, and essentially for me, it's like kind of the completion of a trilogy in terms of my own work. Mm-hmm. You mentioned Breaking Open the Head. That was my first book that came out in 2002, and it was about psychedelic shamanism, uh, I started that book as a scientific materialist, kind of a skeptic, but I had this sort of deep longing. I had this kind of existential crisis. I was working in the media in New York, and things seemed sort of like empty without any any kind of possibility of, of there being like a soul or a spirit. So I kind of went on a you know classic kind of spiritual journey or quest that involved uh, exploring uh, psychedelic substances. Uh, I went to West Africa and did Iboga, mm-hmm. uh, which is psychedelic that's now being used in addiction treatment in a um, kind of uh, initiation ceremony in Gabon. Uh, and I visited a tribe in the Amazon in Ecuador. It's going to be a pretty long answer, but I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a big question. Uh, so anyway, oh, yeah. so, you know, that book, um, you know, I, I ended up shifting my whole understanding of the nature of reality from the sort of scientific materialist worldview to more of an acceptance of like shamanism, kind of a shifting from a kind of a Freudian to a Jungian perspective, like getting really obsessed with, mysticism and the occult and esoteric subjects and mm-hmm. there's like Rudolf Steiner and so on. Um, so in a way, like that first book, I was trying to figure out what was going on in, in the universe um, as best I could. And, and I realized that, you know, the modern world that we were in had trapped us in kind of like a false uh, understanding. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And, um, and incidentally, that first book was also very popular with um, a lot of uh, musicians. That's how I met, like, Sting, for instance. He was, he was a big fan of it. And so then, uh, yeah, he later did a public thing about his own ayahuasca use in his memoir and so on. So then I was sort of asking myself, like, well, well, while I was researching Breaking Open the Head, I discovered a lot of amazing visionary thinkers, including uh, Terence McKenna and Jose Arguelles. Okay, and, yep. I don't know, are you, are you a fan of McKenna? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, he's amazing, and... and um, you know, he had developed all these ideas that we were about to go through this like dimensional shift or into this thing called the Escapon, and it was related to the Mayan calendar in the year 2012. So, and, and Jose Arguelles was another thinker. He had, ended up inventing this 
crazy version of the Mayan calendar called the Dream Spell calendar. Okay. Which I can still check online and get your Dream Spell signature. It's like nice. a whole, it's all made of like synchronicities, like a woven mesh of like synchronicities and so on. It's pretty interesting. So, and he was also really fascinated by the 2012 thing in the Mayan calendar. And, you know, having accepted that indigenous cultures that had shamanic traditions knew more about things that were really, some things that were very important that our culture had completely like forfeited or rejected. I then made that the subject of my second book, which was called 2012, The Return of Quetzalcoatl. And that book took about like five years to write. And I guess if the first book was just trying to figure out like what was going on in the, in, in the universe, the second book was trying to figure out like why was this happening or what did it mean? You know, mm-hmm. so I got involved in a lot of like philosophy and uh, crazy experiences like visiting like the crop circles in England uh, and um, a religion that uses ayahuasca uh, that's based in Brazil that has a lot of prophet- prophetic sort of prophetic understanding of the time that we're in. And anyway, so I wrote that book, and it was very, you know, it was very popular and quite well received. But I, I was left with this gnawing sense of like, okay, like having understood that there that there's some truth to the way these indigenous cultures are seeing this world, that we're in this time of tremendous transformation. But I never really thought that the exact threshold of 2012 meant something in particular. But it was more like they were pointing towards this time as this tremendous time of of, of world changing significance, you know. Mm-hmm. Or uh, and so that let me figure out like how would we what would be the mechanics if we wanted to make the kind of world that um, you know would, would sort of be more uh, in alignment with our highest ideals or, or as the writer Charles Eisenson talks about you know the the, the world that uh, you know the more beautiful world that we know in our hearts are, are is possible then what would actually how how would we what would that look like and how would we bring it about so that's really what this third book is as you said it's like um, manifesto-ish in a sense. Um, it, it both provides kind of like a systems viewpoint, kind of thinking about the situation that we're mm-hmm. in with the ecological crisis and so on, and then tries to offer like a, a model or a blueprint for the changes that we, we need to make to our like technical systems, like, you know, energy and, and farming and industry, and um, to our social and political and economic systems. And I feel that this election of Trump you know, has really made it very, very clear that um, the system that we're in is not going to be able to go on as is, and it, and it needs to go through a very deep transformation. So I'm hoping that that makes my book even even more, you know, poignantly relevant, um, that this is this crucial moment and we have to understand what's at stake. You know? Yeah, yeah, and it does seem like um, I'm, I was, after I got into the book, I was just really excited that we were talking now, you know, at this time, as you describe it, you know, where we are in, in our history. Um, and we're definitely going to get into that. And I should say that people who are who are listening should definitely check out the book. comes out February 20th. Of course, February people 20th. can pre-order it. So they don't forget. There's a website, howsoonisnow.info, with all the usual accoutrements, like for mailing lists, all that kind of stuff, so yep. for events and so on. Yeah. Awesome. And we'll post that um, that link on our, on our blog as well. Um, so there's a lot to dig into there, um, and I think we we do want to get to sort of the current um, or the future, I guess, with with Trump and what that all means. But I think first, just you know, people will have to read the book to to really get into this. But my um, very uh, over oversimplification is, you know, there's sort of a bad news, good news situation. The bad news being what you've already referred to as sort of, I think, qu- quoting your book, an imminent planetary cl- cataclysm. And I think a lot of people listening to this will interpret that in whatever way they, they do, right? There's a lot of different um, facets to it, but um, that's that's something that's 
that's well defined but you you kind of go into the the urgency of it which is which is great but then there's the good news which is really interesting and i think what i wanted to ask about is just this idea of the crisis as a as an opportunity for i think what you call initiation and and i know there's a lot of um, theory and history behind that but I guess tell us a little bit about what that means and and what the world starts to look like if we go down a path that you're envisioning. Okay, cool. Yeah, so one of the main themes of I guess, I guess all of my books at this point has been kind of this idea of initiation, um, and I think it's what I was seeking when I started writing Breaking Open the Head and I started visiting all these tribal cultures around the world and having these intense you know psychedelic visionary experiences. Um, you know, every culture up until the modern society had like rites of passage for young people, particularly men, but women also, um, you know, to kind of separate from their tribe, go through like a dangerous passage where maybe they would take, you know, ayahuasca or peyote, or they would go on a walkabout or they would have a vision quest or a sun dance or something. And, you know, because we don't value these indigenous cultures, we tend to think that it was just like a cultural thing or it was that, you know, interesting. But but actually, it may have had a deeper, like more like kind of, uh, you know, serious significance and necessity almost in that when people are able to go through an initiation and they, and they kind of uh, break through, they can, by going into these visionary states, they break through the constraints of the ego. Like they're not so locked into their limited ego identity. Mm-hmm. They become more connected to something like cosmic consciousness or universal consciousness or the conscious of the Gaian intelligence of the planet or something. And then they're able to be actually adults, fully responsible for not just their own self, but for the health of the community as a whole, which is very much necessary if you're in a tribal group. So without initiations, the problem is that you don't have those visionary ecstatic experiences and people are kind of trapped in a ego uh, world worldview. Uh, and I think that in our, in our culture, we can see that a lot of people are trapped in that way. They're almost like, you know, although they're adults in age, they're kind of like kiddults in the way they behave. <laughs> right, right. And, and once again, I think a perfect kind of summation of that is, is Donald Trump. You know, he could, he's like the apotheosis of a kiddult. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. So, so it's sort of, to me, it's very, in many ways, archetypally significant that he has, you know, made this manifestation at this point, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so, yeah, so, you know, and, and the problem is that because we're biologically wired for transcendence, if we don't have it, you know, through some consciously constructed ceremony, uh, you know, that's protected by elders and tradition, mm-hmm. it'll often end up leading to some kind of catastrophe or disaster, like a war, you know, because there's this kind of energy that needs to get released somehow. And if it can't be released intentionally and consciously, it'll get released destructively. And that's what, like, this thinker Walter Benjamin thought, like, the First World War was. Like, humanity had this deep need to sort of commune ecstatically with the cosmos. And because there was no way for modern people to do it, you know, through vision quests or so on, they did it destructively through war. Interesting. Interesting. I hadn't heard that before. And so when you're when you're thinking about this, I know that the I guess the initiation or this, um, you know, collective consciousness, I know that there, as you were just you said, sort of systemic um, impacts on community and, you know, the world Um, on a personal level. What is that? Is it is it people kind of um, understanding where they fit into this and, and pursuing it themselves and then just sort of building a building a sort of movement that way? Is that the way that you envision this happening up i mean people going to ceremonies or, or whatever they 
feel is personally best for them and then that sort of starts to change society is that the idea well i mean you know i think that's happened to some extent like i know many people you know particularly recently with ayahuasca many people who you know have wealth and influence have these experiences and then they you know feel differently about themselves and, mm-hmm. and you know now there's also a lot of incredible uh medical research being done on the value of psychedelics oh, yeah. um, um you know for all sorts of things However, I feel that in a way like the, you know, kind of like post new age spiritual movement of the last decades kind of wasn't able or hasn't been able yet to kind of take this collective step, which is, which is the next stage away from kind of like it just being another thing that you consume or another way to deepen your individuality into kind of acceptance of, you know, having gone through an initiation, having recognized that you're part of this greater whole, that there is these cosmic forces that you then have a sort of, um, kind of, uh, the, the, the logical next step is to really see yourself as being in service, you know, to the, to the planetary community, you know, to the human family and, and, and even the community of life that surrounds us. Yeah, that, that's great. And, um, I just, as you were answering that question, I realized just to catch people up, we sort of dove straight in and, and didn't, I didn't properly frame the, the kind of thesis of the book, I think, but uh, so I just want to sort of frame the the rest of the conversation. Just reading from from a um, a promotional just comment on your book, that the idea of, of how soon is now is that humanity has sort of unconsciously self willed this ecological catastrophe to bring to bring about sort of a, our current condition. And what we're talking about initiation is necessary for all of us to involve from current level of consciousness to the next and and in that way we can do the things you're describing and and become um higher consciousness but also hopefully start healing our our world the the physical and spiritual world does that sound is that about is that fair yeah that's pretty much it i mean um um yeah i mean uh you know we we know that people tend to evolve through crises uh and you know so you'll have like you know adolescents who are like you know, racing cars or doing too many drugs or whatever. They're like, they're like, they're like pushing themselves to the limit. It's like a very natural human thing. And sometimes that leads to disaster or to, you know, injury or to death. But, you know, sometimes it also brings about a more, you know, constructive uh, realization, you know, uh, you know, so, so, so it's, it seems like we're doing that as a species right now, you know? Well, um, that yeah, and I think most of the people listening to this would agree with that. I think um, you mentioned the um, the fact that you know wealthy people were starting to sort of do this on um, do you know some of these consciousness raising things on their own, and and there is a definitely a sort of in vogue to be mindful and you know meditate and do yoga and all that. Um, but there is a, a crucial component of wealth here, right? In your book, you you talk about the fact that fewer than eighty five individuals. Um, control more than half the Earth's um, more wealth than half the Earth's population are 3.6 billion people. So um, it's incredible. And I, I work on social justice issues and that stat to, to me was even staggering. So what do you do about that? I mean, in, in what you're envisioning, do you do you try to bring sort of the wealthy along? Is it, you know, do you go the way that the Bernie Sanders people and, and others you know, true sort of left wingers want to redistribute wealth. What's your take on how the wealthy and how well, you know, the massive uh, misalignment of wealth, how do you treat all of that? 
Well, yeah, I mean, well, I mean, it's also interesting, you know, I mean, even like, you know, Trump's cabinet appointees control 17 of them, control more wealth than one third of the U.S. population. It's madness. It's, it's, yeah, it's, um, so, you know, and, and once again, I think that the fact that this situation has reached this level of, of apotheosis, you know, it's like reached its zenith, maybe that it points towards the fact that we're going to have to figure out how to change it. Uh, and there's different levels to answer that. I mean, the thing is that, you know, and it's and I've been trying to get uh, the people I know of influence and, and wealth to understand this or, or work through it. And maybe some of them have, you know, the present fit, the present system that allows for some to have lives of tremendous excess, while so many others, you know, are, are scrabbling for existence, is is ecologically unsustainable. Mm-hmm. We're not going to have a future for our grandchildren, maybe even for our children. Uh, with this level of economic uh, disparity and inequality. So, I mean, and, and I can, you know, there are different reasons why I'm, I'm pretty certain that this is the case. So if you are somebody who possesses, you know, a, a, a great amount of excess wealth, you know, and you're privileged that you have the time and the capacity to think about the situation that we're in and to do something about it and to make use of those resources, you know, which also, you know, if, you know, depending on what happens over the next years, you know, capital and the bank may not even be worth very much anymore. If things, if things go in a certain direction mm-hmm. with, you know, wars and, and ecological crises and so on. So, um, so, so, so I think that, you know, there's a way that, um, you know, we have to recognize, you know, the people who have that, um, you know, resource have to recognize, you know, by undergoing an initiation, that uh, you know that th- th- they need to make use of it for for the collective good, you know. And there are, and there are by the way historical examples. I mean, during the Second World War, uh, after the Pearl Harbor attack, uh, the U.S. was able to retool all of its factories within a few months for wartime production, and they put a ninety-four percent tax on on the wealthiest people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, so 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 that wealth was funneled back, you know, into into the into the collective, so we could actually you know, fight the Nazis and so on. And, I, and actually, we're in exactly that level of crisis now when it comes to ecology. I mean, you know, what, what, what's been going on with like COP21 and the UN Accords and, you know, is far too slow. And, and in fact, in some ways, I'm, I'm actually very happy that uh, Hillary Clinton lost the election because I think we've seen under the Clintons and under Obama, there's too much uh, compromise and too much of an attempt to ameliorate, you know, and support, you know, the sort of, this, this sort of, uh, uh, economic, uh, you know, corruption and inequality. You know, you can look at charts of how the economic inequality increased uh, during the eight years of Obama and so on. So we need a deeper reset. And and when we start to think about what that looks like, you know, we actually can think about the fact that, and, and this is where I think psychedelic insights are, are very helpful. Like, I think when you take a psychedelic, you know, for the first time or a few times, it's like incredibly like a deconditioning or deprogramming. Mm-hmm you become aware that all these things that you've you know, gotten, begun to think of as just natural and kind of real in a sense are, are actually just things that human beings constructed, you know, like money, you know, we constructed it to function in a certain way or, you know, the, this, the, 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 the car that's designed to, you know, take two people, you know, around, but, but weighs 2000 tons and is full of rare metals and so on. I mean, these are all, they didn't have to be this way. These are artifacts of human thought and human design. Mm-hmm. Also means that we have the innate capacity to re- reinvent, to redesign, you know, to, to, to you know, take apart the present operating system if it's not serving us and to create something different. You know? So 
in the book, I look at the idea that, you know, the, the, the money that we have now is also maybe inherently part of the problem because it's debt-based, you know, it accrues interest. Mm-hmm. If the money system itself forces more and more growth, like all around the world, apparently, um, you know, GDP is increasing something like two or three percent a year, but but debt is increasing like seven percent a year, which means that everybody is having to push and fight more and more to 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 develop and to grow, and and really that's the whole you know capitalism in itself is a system that pushes for that type of immature growth, you know, uh, and and you know maybe what we're going to realize is that this monetary system we have, even this political system, capitalism itself are kind of immature or adolescent structures. Like they got us to this point. They helped us to bring the world together into one global market, you know, to unify the world, you know, in in, in many respects, to make the whole world one in terms of its communications networks and trade lines and so on. But now we actually have to make a um, sort of creative intervention and um, think about how we could create tools for exchanging value that don't have such a destructive impact on, on our environment, you know, and, and, and I propose some in the book, like um, one is that you could have like a, a, a form of currency that loses value the longer that you hold on to it mm-hmm. right. and a demurrage charge or negative interest. So if you have it, you don't want to hoard it. You want to share it with your friends and your communities or with productive enterprises because if, you know, and, and, and in that way it acts much more like, the way energy does when it circulates the body, like you don't have an organ or a bunch of cells, you know, hoarding a bunch of energy in the form of ATP and depriving the rest of the body from it. The energy has to keep circulating to where it's needed, you know, so, and, and that makes the whole body healthy, you know. So, so that's the kind of model that I look at is almost like biological metaphors for the types of change we need. Yeah, and what's interesting, I mean, at least in America that, that I know, I mean, I think this this um, willingness and ability to to share and to be community minded and to be neighborhood minded maybe in some cases I think exists in in lots of parts of America um, but I'm curious about your take on that whether that's um, you know those sort of small towns or or communities those are just sort of experiments that need to be brought together in a in a bigger way or if you feel like that's that's just a I don't know an outdated view of of how America is i mean you know so you know i'm, I'm a, a new yorker and i you know, have some experience of the rest of the country maybe maybe not to the depth that i that i should uh but yeah i mean i mean there are a lot of values that we can draw upon uh you know like like even churches for instance like mm-hmm. i think one of the most important statements of recent years was made by the catholic pope pope francis he, he issued this thing called uh, Care for a Common Home. It was like an essay that was like an ecological, it was like a left-wing ecological, you know, call to action, cry of the heart, uh, where he was really proposing that, you know, it was part of the Catholic values to take care of our common home. You yeah, know? yeah. So, and, and you could see a situation, you know, where, you know, the networks like that are, are you know, communities are, are galvanized uh, by spiritual leaders and, you know, other types of leaders, public artists, you know, uh, political leaders, if there are any decent ones, to uh, to work together <laughs> right. to, to, to make change, you know. Yeah, definitely. Um, one thing um, I want to, we got a lot to talk about, and this is this is really interesting. Um, I guess you, you, one of the things that I think is impressive about the book is that you kind of operate on, as you, you were describing, I think, 
biological level, you know, sort of our species level, and then we get to sort of the human individual level, and then, you know, systems level. So that's, there's a lot to kind of dig into. But um, I was fascinated by the by the observation that as a species, we're sort of in the dark, not knowing where we want to or need to go. And I think that has probably become more visible to people recently. But it's just interesting that technology and from the Industrial Revolution, probably onwards, or maybe even before, we see um, we see ourselves as as being, you know, as knowing where the future leads and, and having the strength and intellectual ability to, to sort of go where we need to go. But it does seem like we're um, looking backwards now or, lo- or looking forwards without knowing where we're looking. So I'm just curious if that's, if you feel like that's becoming more of an issue now, or if that's just how the species has always been. I mean, I, I think that, you know, over the last couple centuries, you know, there was like heroic narratives of, you know, industrial, progress and, and technology as a kind of redemptive force. And in, in Silicon Valley, that's actually become almost like a kind of fundamentalism with singularity, singularity university, that our, our destiny is to ultimately like merge with machines um, in, to a certain respect. Um, but I think that we're ignoring the fact that, um, you know, we, we kind of haven't done what we need to do to kind of humanize our, our, our technology uh, in that, like, you know, even though it's, it's, you know, we've, we've created all this stuff, it's, it's really not making most people's lives better or easier past a certain point mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and maybe not getting early childhood diseases as much, but people are working frenetically. They're incredibly anxious. You know, they're scared about the destiny of, 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 of you know, their, their children and so on, or if they're going to be able to, you know, young people are living, you know, in, in, you know, don't even have a sense that they're going to have like a career in the future and so on. So, you know, we, we've created a very insecure and unstable situation that benefits mm-hmm. those people who are, you know, capitalizing on it, who have the wealth and the resources. Um, you know, what would make more sense would be kind of a, a different model. Like, like, you know, what we could say, for instance, this is like maybe the future is actually kind of like a post-work society, you know, where, where people don't have to work unnecessary shit jobs, you know, where, where we do, or automation is actually welcomed. I mean, I thought it was kind of ridiculous in this last election that, um, you know, they want to restore all these industrial jobs like the fifties or whatever, uh, rather than, you know, let's automate and people don't have to do those kinds of jobs anymore. Then they can have the time to really care for their loved ones, live in, you know, multi-generational communities, you know, maybe grow some of their own food, make their own energy, participate in local democracies, you know, and study and and create and and innovate and so on. I mean, it's just, uh, there's a different, there's a different model that's possible uh, that even the the, the developments in technology and so on even point toward it. But, but I, you know, I don't think it's very well expressed. That's one of the things I was trying to talk about in my book. I want to, I want to shift gears a little bit and talk a little bit more about sort of psychedelics and psychedelic culture. I think that's where there's a big overlap um, between what you've worked on and, and done um, in your life and, and sort of our listeners, um, which we'll get into in a little bit more detail. But let's just start by um, the kind of counterculture broadly. I know that you you grew up um, around the New York counterculture of the 60s. Um, do you see today's, I mean, do you see a counterculture today? What, is it, what does it look like? How is it different than, than what you saw growing up and what you saw that was such a clearly defined sort of moment and movement? Yeah, well, there there are many different countercultures. It's kind of like a moving target, and, and they keep 
changing in, in very subtle and, and significant ways. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, in New York, there's lots of, you know, it's like a ferment of, of kind of avant-garde, you know, performance and, you know, uh, people who are fascinated with, you know, transgender and altered states and, and, and all these areas. Um, you know, then there's the Burning Man uh, subculture, which, um, you know, when I first encountered it um, 15 years ago, it was so incredible to me. I couldn't believe that it existed. And over time, I feel it's gotten a little bit co-opted and it's like kind of lost a sense of its own values and purpose. But uh, still, this this whole what's become a global movement of transformational festival culture is definitely a very significant uh, counterculture. Mm-hmm. And it's an opportunity for many people to, you know, have a, a, a fully experiential time, you know, where they're not on their cell phones, where they're not focused on, you know, work schedules or freelance jobs, you know, they come into those places, those those sort of autonomous zones and can experience, you know, direct connection, you know, sometimes altered states or just, you know, dancing as an altered state or or whatever. Uh, So I think think that's become a very profound uh, form of counterculture, actually. Yeah, great. Well, that's that's exactly where I was going to go next. How has music influenced you personally, and and um, can you elaborate a little bit on the role that that music plays in in what you're envisioning? I mean, art in general, and it's different. It's different forms, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, definitely. I was, you know, I'm I'm I was I'm 50 years old. So I was born in '66, so my you know values were very much shaped by kind of hearing the music of the '60s, the kind of anthemic. Mm-hmm the Beatles and, and, and so on from way back when. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I feel that, you know, uh, mu- music kind of like often points towards kind of this, this capacity for human freedom or, or human liberation, um, you know, and, and the Beatles obviously, you know, in their like late, you know, anthems, like all you need is love and so on. Like uh, we're giving, we're giving, giving that, that idea. And in a way I feel that my, my new book, book is an effort to kind of, um, you know, it's not just, we can't just say all you need is love anymore. It's been said now, now we have to figure out a a social and political and economic and technical and industrial infrastructure that supports that realization that makes it, that makes it realized and and viable. Um, so yeah, in in that sense, the kind of spirit of, uh, of that type of music has been, has been crucial for me. That's interesting, and you know, as as I think you know, the the fish um, community, the fish culture is there's a lot of overlap. Um, what you describe, you know, dancing and and having a good time, and for a lot of people, um, psychedelics as as a experience a different a different state of mind, I guess. To just a lot of times, people have those experiences, and they feel that liberation, and they remember them as like the greatest experiences of their lives. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they also maybe kind of like find a way to just compartmentalize them. You know, it's like, okay, like I've got my workday life. Then every now and then I've, I've had, you know, I have these incredible experiences of connection or, or maybe I don't, don't even have them anymore. I, I stopped doing it, but I remember them as the fondly as these, as these great threshold experiences of my life. And I, I guess in a way I'm, I'm more of an idealist than that. And I'm saying like, no, like that, that experience of connection and ecstasy and, you know, brotherly and sisterly love and so on is something that we should be able to have all the time. Our society should enable that, should support it. You know, it's just, it's just some weird mistake, you know, that, um, you know, so much of our focus is on, is on the gloom and the doom, you know? Yeah. And you're right. A lot of, and a lot of people in the fish community, I think go to 
go to these, you know, go to fish shows in order to um, replicate or, or have the next the next um, iteration of that experience. In, and I think look forward to those experiences for for a lot of reasons. But but in a lot of for a lot of people, that is why they go because it's a the whole like that isolated experience represents a different um, state of reality. And and I think what you're proposing that we can you can transcend that and it, it doesn't have to just be in isolated points in time and in isolated places. I mean, you know, I, I, as I said, like my, my nature is to be kind of an idealist. And, you know, when I went to Burning Man and there was this incredible, like emancipated experience and, you know, no, you don't use any money and leave no trace and it's all based on the gift. And so and I was like, wow, like, of course, like, this is just like a prelude. Like, this is just like, we're warming up here and the goal is for us to then, you know, bring this new spirit and this new consciousness out to the planet as a whole. And and I guess what I began to get disappointed with over the over over the years of going there is that it seemed like it became more insular, and then more in a way like wealthy people started to go. That even mm-hmm. increased the vibe of insularity, like an in group. It became like a like a culture, um, you know. And, and that's actually Terence McKenna had a very good point where uh, you know culture is your enemy. That is, as soon as things mm-hmm. become a, a mm-hmm. culture, they kind of have like crystallized or coagulated, they've become like a dead form again. I want to move on to sort of where we, where we go from here. But I think, um, as people, people who are listening to this and who, who listen to go to music, um, see music as, as their sort of main experience, um, that I think transcends the current levels of consciousness, I guess, to put it that way. But, um, I think people who are listening to this should, should check out the book and, and think about it a little bit differently the way you're describing. Cause I think it's a, it's a really, um, kind of fascinating way to to think um earlier you mentioned the the election of trump and of course you know we've had two months of um i don't know seven stages of grief i guess at least for for a lot of us (laughs) we're probably it's probably not over yet right it's interesting you you finished this book before the election yeah yeah so you know reading the even just the intro and the first few pages you're like wow this is this is it's poignant as as you said was the election of trump do you think it does it feel more like the tipping point that you need to to kind of move forward or does it feel like more of a setback well you know barring the possibility that he might you know embroil us in like a nuclear war i, I have to say i think you know and and, and, and you know and, and, and that it is very anxiety and anger provoking and all that stuff i think in many respects it's it's the best thing that could have happened hmm. uh, because all of the sort of hidden kind of suspicions one had about, you know, the nature of power and, and, and politics and, and, you know, wealth and, and corruption, you know, it's not hidden anymore. It's just, it's just blatant. You know, the, the secretary of state may very well be the CEO of Exxon, you know, which has been a company that's, you know, spent decades denying, uh, you know, scientific evidence around climate change and has been, you know, potentially responsible for, you know, bringing about, you know, this, uh, you know, crisis of, of, of global warming, uh, you know, more than almost any other company on earth, you know? And so, yeah. And, and also, um, in a way, like it's very, it's a, maybe it's a tough thing to say, but, you know, it, looking at the precedence of like when it goes very right wing in this country, ultimately that leads to kind of an economic collapse, you know, as it did in 2008, you know, when mm-hmm. based and, and in a way that also, some kind of some kind of collapse is necessary uh, if we're going to 
kind of shift gears away from thinking that we can continue business as usual towards awakening to the fact that we have to deal with the ecological situation. And, you know, just as I mentioned, you know, under Obama and the Clintons, wealth inequality kept increasing, you know, they also didn't have the the, the, the force or the, or the, the willingness or whatever it would take to really make the public, you know, the, the aware of the, the urgency of this ecological crisis, which honestly, you know, it could in theory bring about our, our extinction in the next uh, couple centuries, you know, if not sooner. Yeah. And I think, um, on a, I guess on a policy level, you know, Obama, um, I think, a lot of us feel that Obama could have done could could have done a lot more on climate change and on um, the environment. And I guess the flip side of that is that on protecting public lands and the Paris stuff. I mean, there was there was progress, but but um, compared to the the magnitude of the of the disaster, I think is is what you're saying, right? Well, it's also. I mean, I think the mistake that Obama made, um, and but I mean, it's also just the type of person he was. He's a kind of a managerial person. You know, so when he came, got elected in 2008, he had this huge mandate and, you know, millions of people who were excited to volunteer in some type of social movement for progress. But he didn't really continue with his volunteers. He just, he just kind of went into business as usual, politics as usual. And I think like, um, you know, we, we need something that's more like an Occupy movement and that it's really about, you know, working on the, on the local level, you know, from mm-hmm. in community, community to community and getting people uh, engaged and uh, in, 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 a, in a participatory democratic process, that is something that's totally beyond what this political system is now designed to do. You know? what, so what do you think about, um, first of all, I'm just curious about your take on the, the Sanders campaign and, and what, your, what your take was during the campaign. And also, if whether or not you see any people who seem like they could be, you know, standard bearers for this kind of movement, whether, whether within current political parties or not. Uh, I think that Bernie Sanders was, you know, pretty magnificent. Uh, I mean, you know, a man who like, you look at his record and he like fully embodied the principles and values that he espoused for his whole career in a kind of unwavering way. And it's definitely an, an American tragedy that he didn't become president. But I also feel that somehow it's the karma of this country that we have this situation now to face, where we have like the ultimate con artist, flimflam, and uh, kind of representative of, you know, kind of like uh, some people say, like a hobo's uh, vision of a rich person, where even the toilet <laughs> are gold. You know, yeah. uh, you know it could couldn't be any bit more ridiculous. And I think that we have to say that on so many levels, that's that's could be great, you know, because because. You know, something has to die for something new to be born. And, you know, this form of power politics, this form of capitalism, um, you know, we, we can't continue with it anymore. It's, it's too uh, it's direct conflict with the biosphere and, and, and with our, our, the health of our human family as all. Any politicians um, that you like or admire at this point? So, yeah. So once again, I mean, I'm, I'm most intrigued by this idea that what has to replace the system is something quite different from the system. So, I mean, there are some who are beautiful, like, like, you know, Bernie is beautiful. Van Jones, you know, is beautiful, but you know, I, I think that it, honestly, like, um, you know, what I talk about in the book is, um, that there is a connection between, and you know, this is a sort of an abstract idea, I guess, between like the evolution of, of media technology and the evolution of, of political economic systems, you know? So like, mm-hmm 
you could never have had like empires without a written code of law, you know, that could, that's what everybody could know, you know, what Rome meant as the law, you know, when you were in, you know, thousands of miles away. And you could never have had the, the nation state, the liberal democratic nation state with our two party system without uh, the printing press, which allowed everybody to, to know enough about what right. was happening, they could vote. And so I, I feel that the internet is, is, is more than just, you know, I mean, you know, another tool, it actually should bring about a, a sort of structural transition in our political economic system. And the you know, what, what should, you know, what, or what, what seems like it might eventually emerge would be something that would be more, in a way, it would be very much like the original anarchists talked about, like something that would allow people to instantly vote. Uh, you know, you wouldn't have to be, you know, you wouldn't just put your, you know, support for one corrupt candidate from one of two parties that are both, that are both ridiculous. You know, you would continuously have to be engaged and you would choose, you would learn about subjects and you would, if you didn't know about a subject, you would proxy your vote to a friend or to somebody that you trusted on that subject. And so the whole democratic system would take a different form. It, it would be more truly participatory. And if you look at something like blockchain, for instance, you know, there, there's no technical reason that we couldn't have like a global direct democracy at this point. Got it. All right. Well, yeah, that's... <laughs> There's a, there's so much we could talk about, so we'll 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 keep this conversation going, um, either on here or, or offline next. Yeah, sure. But it's a little bit my tragedy as a human being to like, you know, think so far ahead in some ways. I mean, I don't know. Maybe that sounds self-aggrandizing, but you know, like when I and the reason I took this so seriously is that you know when I wrote Breaking Open the Head, mm-hmm. you know, it's kind of like a cry from the wilderness. Where I was like, wow, like these experiences are the most amazing thing that anybody could possibly imagine they're so profound they're so transformative and i'm in the society that ridicules them and hates them you know how could how could this be you know and and now i've seen you know and you know that i think that book was one of many influences that over time you know the psychedelic experience has become taken you know it's now taken much more seriously Mm -hmm. science supporting people are you know, learning that it's 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 one of the antidotes to the to, to the present you know kind of nihilism you know emptiness and so on. So um, and you know, but but you know, for a long time, you know, I felt like I was I couldn't get a, a hearing you know in, in the mainstream or whatever. And with this book, it's the same thing. Like I know that five years from now or three years from now, you know, many many people are going to be thinking hard and not just thinking about it, but actually practicing ways to bring about a radical system change. Because if we don't do it, we're not going to make it on this planet. We're done. You know, this, this can't continue. This, this laughable charade of, of the, of these idiots with their, you know, their, their, their power politics and, and their corruption. It's not, it's, it's over for that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I think a lot of people feel that we should talk about and maybe end on, on the idea of, you know, what we do with all this, um, pent up, you know, frustration and excitement, I think, um, from people to get involved and to do things, um, to do things that, that help, uh, move, I think what we would all consider good causes forward. I mean, you, you, at the beginning of the book, you quote Abby Hoffman saying action is the only reality, which is an interesting quote. And I think we have this, uh, maybe unprecedented opportunity to leverage people's excitement slash fear about getting involved and getting engaged and moving toward a better, better world um what what can people do to get engaged i mean what's your what would you say if you talk to a you know someone just so despondent about the election and just wants to do something i mean what where do you go from here 
So yeah, I mean, it, it's it, it, when, I mean, like many of these subjects, it's a little more you know complex. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, my efforts. Uh, one of the things that I did over the last you know ten years was I started a company and a nonprofit. <clears throat> the company was called uh, Evolver, and the nonprofit was called the Evolver Network. And the, the nonprofit side of it was actually kind of creating a template for local groups to organize or to self-organize, but to have enough structure that they would have things to do together mm-hmm. and they would hold monthly events on different themes or whatever. And then various reasons that movement kind of dissipated, but, but I feel that that model of, of, of local community groups uh, has to be uh, the right thing to do. And I see it forming in New York now. I see a lot of new groups uh, starting up activist groups and so on. Um, so I suppose like getting involved in community somehow it's the number one thing. Like people can do a lot more working together, you know, whether yeah. it's like, you know, f- you know, there's phone banking. I mean, you know, that group was collecting clothes for Standing Rock, you know, and then there's obviously individual behavioral changes. But, you know, I, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm personally, you know, I'm, I'm interested in either trying to construct it myself or if I find the right thing, I would, I would immediately join on. But I, I think there needs to be some infrastructure for local community groups to form uh, that, that have like a template um, and yet uh, independence also. Um, so, I mean, I tried to do that once with Evolver and I'll try it again, but uh, that, that really intrigues me. And then obviously individually, you know, there's a lot of stuff that we know we should do and it's hard to do alone, you know, whether it's even taking your money out of a big bank, you know, because the banks are supporting the oil companies and the pipelines and so on, or going vegetarian uh, or as much as vegetarian as possible because we know that that's probably the single biggest thing that we can do, you know, to lower, you know, climate change. Yeah. Once again, I see the possibility of the internet providing an infrastructure for people to sign like collective social contracts. I think like it's hard for us to, for one person to be like, you know, to change their life patterns. But if you were doing it as part of a movement of like, you know, a hundred thousand or a million people and you knew that everybody was doing it for the same reason, I think you'd be really excited and happy to do it, you know? And here, here's another place where I think, musicians, you know, like Fish or like Sting or public artists, you know, could play a great role. They could really be movement leaders um, in getting people engaged in, 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 you know, large-scale projects for behavioral change. Uh, That's something that really intrigues me. Yeah, absolutely. And um, so many artists, I think, are um, are hesitant to get involved with with stuff, but I guess um, the way you're describing it, I think because it's artist involvement in politics i guess has been so polarizing and and that's something that fish has been particularly um i guess neutral about over the years even though i think we all probably understand what their ideologies are but if you think about it not in terms of politics but in terms of you know moving forward in order to make a better better world it's a it's a totally different ask and a totally different motivation you know yeah i think there's definitely a way to recontextualize it that could work for for everybody Daniel, is there anything else that that we should um, we should chat about regarding the book? Uh, yeah, I would say that one of the more fun and more kind of extravagant parts of my thesis, <coughs> excuse me, is that you know I, through my study of shamanism and my ex- explorations and 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 uh, journeys, I ended up you know discovering that from my perspective, humans possess psychic abilities, like tremendous psychic abilities, latent psychic abilities. And, 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 you know, a lot of these indigenous cultures knew about them, like the Hopi in Arizona, 
you know, when they do their rain dances, you know, sometimes apparently they're able to generate enough, enough rain to keep their crops alive and so on. That's been verified even by anthropologists who, like lived with them and so on. So once again, if we're, if we've subconsciously created this ecological crisis to bring about our own transcendence, maybe by pushing ourselves out of our comfort zone, we're also going to be able to re rediscover and reaccess these uh, latent uh, psychic abilities that uh, might be used in a lot of different ways. Um, you know, and, and maybe that where we are in the discovery of our psychic abilities is similar to the, where people were in, you know, discover, working with electricity in the you know, beginning of the late 18th, you know, beginning of the 19th century, where they began to know that it was powerful and, you know, but they didn't know how to channel it or transmit it or what it could be used for and so on. So that's an idea that I'm that I, that I personally like to just get out there as a, as, a, as a as a thought bomb for people. Nice. Tweet at us at HFPod. Tweet at Daniel at Daniel Pinchback, and um, you know maybe we can start a conversation and have some more of these um, these exchanges. Um, so Daniel, um, how soon is now comes out on February twentieth? Yeah. People can people can find out more about it at howsoonisnow.info. And so people should go there, pre order, check it out. Um and also check out some of Daniel's other work. It's really important important ideas and, and important thinking you're doing. So thanks for um for sharing it with us. Thanks for having me. It was a good chat. Okay everyone, thanks for listening. Uh you can reach us on Twitter at HFPod. Send us email, thoughts, uh questions, comments, helping friendly podcast at gmail dot com. We're gonna hop into an early set of fish, Halloween what is a city without its music? The legacy of the New York Philharmonic is incredible. Nearly two centuries of history. That's a lot of music and a lot of stories. I was sitting on stage for the very first time thinking, I can't quite believe this is happening. Join me, Jamie Bernstein, as we explore the history of the New York Philharmonic. It's the NY Phil story made in New York, a podcast about a city, its people, and their orchestra. Listen wherever you get podcasts. 1987, set two. I um, hope you all enjoy. See you next week. Keep on rocking.
Okay, this one's by request.
little talking pup. The marshal colonel foreman has played out all the grub.
ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. I'm Amara Jones. Every day, the attacks on trans kids grow louder, and more anti trans bills keep moving through state legislatures. In this season of the Anti Trans Hate Machine, we're going to illuminate how the right wing has fueled these bills by generating a breathtaking and wide ranging disinformation campaign. It's spreading like wildfire on the internet, it's then being discussed by families and churches. None of this is an accident, it's a strategy to delegitimize trans people and create a world where our existence is a question. Subscribe to season two of the Anti-Trans Hate Machine, a plot against equality, wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit amfam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. I don't think it overstates things to say that the Beatles were the greatest gift to entertainment and culture of our time, a secular religion, if you will, with their universal appeal and demonstrable impact on people's lives. I'm Robert Rodriguez, host of Something About the Beatles. With every episode, I speak with historians, musicians, artists, and Beatle witnesses, all in the service of fresh insights into the most joyous cultural entity the world has ever known. I hope you'll join me and listen to something about the Beatles, now on Evergreen, and wherever you get your podcasts.